Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please rise for the call to worship. Let's see, I've closed my Bible. Uh, Psalm 146. Verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord on my soul. I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Let us do so now by singing together hymn 667. seated. I'll never understand why that hymn is in the back of the hymnal and the occasional hymns. It should be a hymn of praise at the beginning. Anyways, that's how I treat it. Uh, Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you again for uh, bringing us together as a Christian assembly, which is just to say as a church, an ecclesia. Uh, We are conscious of the fact that we can worship you alone, but uh, we would rather not. Uh, We are made to exist in community, uh, just as you created Adam to have a wife and then children and and ultimately to populate the world. 
man was not meant to be alone. And that doesn't just mean, obviously, that a man needs a wife. He does need a wife, but he also needs other people to dwell with him in the earth. And in this period where so many are suffering under such terrible isolation, especially in other states, we praise you, O God, that we have this ability to gather. And, and let us express to you, O God, our commitment and our desire to continue to do so. We will continue to gather, O God. That is our commitment. Uh, and, and, and we pray your blessing in that. And we pray that you would continue to pave and to open the way uh, for us to do so. Uh, and so here we are, O God. We are we are together as a Christian assembly. We're singing your praise. We're now seeking to enter in. We just uh, sung together that Jesus has opened the way to the Father. And that's what we keep seeing in Hebrews. So we set aside Hebrews for uh, one week. Uh, we are so grateful for that, Lord Jesus. You are a great high priest. You are our savior. You are our king. Uh, and, and certainly Psalm 110 teaches us to view you as all of these things, the Messiah, the king, the priest. And it is your priesthood that we are apt to, to, to neglect. And yet we find that the richest blessings, uh, and I say this with reverence, but uh, in agreement with, with many of the Reformed Fathers, that the greatest blessings are, are, are tied to your priesthood, not to your kingship, not to your prophethood, but to your priesthood. Uh, the blessings of forgiveness, uh, the blessings of salvation, the blessings of access into heaven, the assurance which we have, your ability to help us in time of need to offer grace. All of the things which we seek and which we need, for we are beset with weakness and we are beset with temptation. And we need you, even in the hour of worship, to uh, wipe away the stain of sin, to sprinkle us with your blood, to cleanse us afresh, and to make us fit objects and vessels of worship in the sanctuary. Uh, dear Lord, uh, we, we are seeking to deal with heavenly things, which is to say with the things which, uh, which surround and, and, and in which your life consists you are the Lord of heaven. You are a spiritual being. We thank you that now there is one who dwells in heaven like us, even the Lord Jesus, uh, in his humanity. So he shares fully in your godhood. And, and, and that is our assurance. That is our certainty. Uh, but still, as we are humans and deal with God uh, through a human, uh, we recognize that you are not a human being, uh, essentially. You are a spiritual being who lives and exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it is the spiritual which has the greatest preeminence and the greatest priority. In fact, the Apostle Paul even tells us, and it is amazing to think, but we get a glimpse of this in the resurrection appearances, that even our bodies will become spiritual when they are resurrected. And so the spiritual is always preeminent to us. And it is a, uh, a spiritual uh, transaction that we are seeking this morning, O oh God, as we deal so often with that which is common and that which is worldly, not sinful, but common and worldly. Our lives are filled with ordinary fleshly things, outward things, uh, and, and we're all right with that. But we wish one day in seven to deal with the great things, the spiritual, the heavenly, the enduring, the abiding. And so we ask you, Heavenly Father, that you might bless your people. Uh, through these various means that they might become to us channels of grace and vessels of mercy, uh, a small cup, uh, a small piece of bread, uh, a, a, a sermon beset with weakness, a gathering beset with weakness, all things contemptible in the eyes of the world. Lord, uh, we don't seek to dress any of them up. None of them, not even the sermon. Uh, they, we, we just let them be as they are, a, a contemptible display of weakness to the world. But to the one who is spiritual, these things are full of blessing and they're full of life and they're full of holiness. We are, dwell, we are dealing with holy things as we seek to dwell with God. And we ask you, O oh God, that in doing so that we might 
more and more partake of your holiness and that our lives would be an ever increasing experience of your holiness, which is to say, oh, God, that we might be growing in holiness. Might we reflect your glory to the world, especially in worship, but even as we go out into the world, we confess to you that there were so many questions which are pressing upon both the church and the Christian as an individual in society today. We ask you that you might give us some guidance even this morning from Romans chapter 13. We ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would be a clear guide to our consciences uh, as well as that you would shed great light upon your word as we read and study it diligently and as we read and study it diligently uh, in the church as well. Father, uh, lead us through this dark world. Lead us to the heavenly Jerusalem. We know that we will face many difficulties, many trials, many temptations, but we have a sure guide who is Jesus. He has not only gone before us, but he leads us even now. And he comes to us again through the help of the Holy Spirit. We pray to you, Holy Spirit, for your gracious influence, for your leading, for your direction. We pray, as the Apostle Paul says, that we would not walk according to the flesh and its desires, but that we would be led by the Spirit and that we would walk by the Spirit and that our lives would be marked and filled with the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, that we would be like the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we recognize that you are a person just like the Father and the Son. And we look to you, we praise you, we adore you. And we ask you to help us, help us to partake of your holiness in your life. We ask you to fill us again and again throughout the Christian life, even this morning. We pray that uh, the Christian life for us would not be marked by low point after low point, but high point after high point, ever, ever growing in our knowledge and our assurance and our experience of the divine life. Lord, uh, would you lead us on from victory unto victory by faith and overcome the world by faith? But insofar as we are bound uh, to, to face discouragements and difficulties uh, and things which even deject us utterly and rob us of our faith. We pray as the shepherd of our souls, Lord Jesus, that you would indeed shepherd us and that you would care for us, and that you would comfort your church continually and that you would send to her shepherds who would shepherd her tenderly and also boldly and fearlessly with courage. For we need that as well. We need shepherds who are strong enough to ward off the wolves and to protect the sheep, not just to care for them tenderly. Oh, God, uh, in this age, as in every age, the need for, for true leadership and true clarity and true direction in the church is great. And we pray that you would offer such things above all. Oh, Lord, we pray that your glory would be our great aim, especially as we seek to, to, to sit under and to conform our lives to the teaching of Scripture. Help us to do so, oh God. But then as we close our prayer, we remember those words you taught us to say. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As I indicated last week, uh, I want to do a brief break uh, in Hebrews, even though we are in the midst of uh, Hebrews chapter nine, where we had those three, uh, those three headings, the blood, the covenant and the tabernacle. We, we still have to deal with the tabernacle uh, and then we'll just keep going on in Hebrews. Uh, but I've been studying and, and wishing uh, to share my own thoughts on Romans chapter 13 uh, and I feel the time is right to do so. Uh, and uh, as a background to that, uh, and perhaps uh, what is an even more important statement 
what our Lord says in Matthew 22 to the Pharisees, and then uh, equally in 1 Peter chapter 2, and in many ways the sermon be- becoming a summary of those three passages, uh, let us begin with Matthew 22, as we seek to answer the question of what is, uh, as Christians, our relationship to the state? It's a question uh, many answers uh, are being offered to, but uh, I wonder how many of them are right. Matthew 22, verse 15, Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said, and they sent their disciples to him along with uh, the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God, God's. And hearing this, they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. And then First Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, uh, similar teaching. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king, as to one in authority, or to governors, as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and to the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And now in response to God's word, let us stand together and sing the doxology. Please to the Psalter Selection 38, Psalm 77 on page 636. And read along with me in the bold. I cried unto God with my voice, even unto God with my voice. And he gave ear unto me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My sore ran in the night and ceased not. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. Thou holdest mine eyes waking. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I commune with mine own heart and my spirit made diligent search. Will the Lord cast off forever and will he be favorable no more? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Doth his promise fail forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? And I said... 
This is my infirmity, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. I will meditate also of all thy work and talk of doings. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? Thou art the God that doest wonders. Thou hast declared thy strength among the people. Thou hast with thine arm redeemed thy people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw thee, O God. The waters saw thee. They were afraid. The depths also were troubled. The clouds poured out water, the sky sent out a sound, thine arrows also went abroad. The voice of thy thunder was in the heaven, the lightnings lightened the world, the earth trembled and shook. Thy way is in the sea, and thy path in the great waters, and thy footsteps are not known. Thou lettest thy people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And now in preparation for the word both read and preached, let us stand together and sing hymn 94.
Considering the teaching of Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. A passage I've been eager to preach, but uh, I don't think I was quite ready to do so until now. And hear the word of the Lord. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. But you want to have no fear of authority, or do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers or servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And let us pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you for the teaching of Scripture. We pray that through the word both read and preached that you might shed great light on a subject which we confess is of great interest to us and which is receiving a lot of press today uh, in Christian circles. Let us uh, together, O Lord, uh, uh, sit under your word and seek to be taught. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, as I've indicated, here is a subject of study for me for uh, several weeks, uh, if only for my own personal edification, uh, but also seeking clarity myself, uh, since I'm one of the shepherds of the church, and since, uh, well, so many Christians, as I say, are, are dealing with this subject, so many things are being said, um, both in this church and outside. Uh, this is a subject of great interest, I think, to us all. Uh, and, and it is uh, something which I can only deal with very broadly as, as something of a survey. In fact, uh, I, as I indicated in the first service, I'll, I'll do so again here. You, you might even say this isn't a sermon. I don't know. <laughs> I think it is, but perhaps you'll say it's just a teaching. But if so, so be it. Uh, certain things, I think, need to be made clear as we go forward as a church and as we proceed, and perhaps even as we seek to clarify why decisions have been made as they have up to this point. So the question which uh, we are seeking to answer and which I'm seeking to answer in a very broad way is the relationship of the Christian to the state. One which involves the Christian both considered as part of the church uh, as well as a Christian who lives and functions in society. Both of these have relevance to us uh, and and I think uh, which have an obvious relevance uh, in the present hour. Something uh, which has always had relevance in every age. But thanks to our Constitution and the principles upon which this nation were, uh, were founded, we have more or less been able up, uh, up to this point to take religious freedom for granted. Uh, but it seems now that things are changing. Uh, now, uh, in certain states, uh, and I'm not trying to be controversial in the least, I'm simply stating the facts. In certain states, uh, you have governors dictating to the church whether they are allowed to gather, whether they are allowed to sing, 
whether they are allowed to partake of the Lord's Supper. Uh, and suddenly, with the presence of these new pressures, Christians are being forced to consider afresh, as I say, uh, the very issues raised in Romans 13 and these other passages. Again, simply uh, the relationship of both the church to the state and then the individual Christian to the state. Those are, I see, uh, separate issues, which I will deal with separate, uh, separately. I've noticed uh, two extremes. There are those who comply without uh, almost any thought at all. And then there are those who are prepared to disobey in almost every instance. <laughs> so uh, two extremes, and uh, we have some of that in our own church. Uh, let us be frank, we have a lot of that in the world around us, I mean in the Christian world around us, and uh, some of us perhaps feel caught in between. Uh, but at the same time, I would say there, there really isn't a lot of room uh, to be caught in between. Uh, when these sort of things are uh, having to be faced by each of us, you, you sort of have to take your stand one way or the other. Uh, and, and there is something to be said for both sides here, uh, though when it comes to the church specifically, I confess my own inclination to the second view, uh, which is that uh, the state has no business telling the church what she may or may not be doing, uh, which I hope to make clear. But let me try to help us all by considering the issue, as I say, very broadly. And so I won't answer every question, uh, but perhaps I'll answer some of them. And I'll even confess uh, that while this could have been a miniseries, I've condensed many thoughts into one sermon. Uh, there is still the possibility of one additional sermon uh, if the interest is there, though I will most likely uh, just dive back into Hebrews. We are looking uh, together this morning at what the Apostle Paul has to say in Romans 13, if only because that is the passage that uh, is, as I say, getting the most press today, uh, though perhaps... Uh, I would say what Jesus says in Matthew 22, verse 21, is even more important. And so we have to keep in mind uh, that statement, 1 Peter chapter 2 as well, uh, and, and, and even uh, recognize there are other statements in the New Testament that deal with the same subject. And they always deal with it in the same way. And so in looking at one, we, we are, in effect, summarizing the others anyways. And let me remind you that as we do so and as we recognize uh, this new relevance, which the question has in our own age, that uh, these issues are nothing new, but that uh, they have indeed been relevant in prior ages. For the Christian to be faced with such questions uh, is something, for instance, that was true in the New Testament when it was written, which is why the New Testament addresses the issue so many times, because as uh, the church was transitioning from a national entity, Israel, uh, into a transnational entity, uh, the church, uh, there were there were there uh, were questions which they obviously had and needed to be answered. What then was the church's relationship to the state to be? And and hence we have uh, its many guiding state guiding statements in the New Testament. Uh, just historically, uh, we, we also should recognize that uh, many of our heroes had to face and to answer the same questions and did so in various ways, such as, for instance, in the time of the Reformation or our Puritan forefathers uh, and also the Pilgrim Fathers who founded this nation. All of them were dealing with in the church this very question. Uh, and, and it becomes an interesting uh, question of historical study uh, for myself and, and for you as well. Uh, if you go back and, and seek to study it, uh, the way in which they grappled with this. And we're not always consistent and we're not always in agreement with one another. That's one of the things you'll find. Uh, but they were forced to take a stand on these issues. Let me also say this. At such times when uh, the, these pressures are brought to bear upon the church and the church is forced uh, to speak with clarity and to act with clarity, that confusion tends to abound. 
It abounded uh, in the early church. It abounded in the time of the Reformation. If you know the history of the Anabaptists, for instance, uh, it has abounded in many ages. And I would also say it's abounding today. If anything, this sermon is meant, uh, I hope, to clear up some of the confusion. What we need, above all, is to be guided by the clear light of Scripture. The question once more is this. How are we as Christians to conceive of our relationship to the state, both, again, collectively as a church and individually as citizens? Let me begin by making this observation. And that is that the New Testament never engages in politics. Never once. The New Testament is not interested in settling the political questions or disputes of any given age. And it never does so. And so when people bring the New Testament into a political disagreement, it is almost always wrong. Uh, whichever side of the debate you fall in. I do notice, however, that that is not to say that the New Testament has nothing to say to rulers. It has things to say to those in subjection, but also to rulers. Uh, and, and so in thinking about this, I was reminded, for instance, of the preaching of John the Baptist, who uh, condemned Herod for his sin. And uh, as you know, he lost his head for it. And so I don't think it's wrong for a Christian or a minister to denounce the wickedness of a ruler in saying that the church is not a political uh, or, or the New Testament, rather, is not a political document. It doesn't mean that we are unable to condemn, as John did, the sins of this or that ruler. But the New Testament never engages in issues of politics, which is an obvious point, but it needs to be said. And I think it needs to be said at the outset. The New Testament never tells us, for instance, which form of government is best. It merely tells us that in which in whichever form of government you find yourself, whether kings or governors or whatever, as Peter says in first Peter chapter two, that you are uh, to be in subjection. You are to be a model citizen. But it, it has no comment on the ideal form of government. It doesn't comment on the policies of this or that ruler. Though, as I say, it sometimes comments on their character. And uh, here is perhaps the most important issue. The New Testament doesn't even tell us what kinds of civic engagement or civil disobedience uh, are appropriate for the Christian. Uh, it says nothing about these things. Now, why take the trouble to point this out? Because too often we imagine the Bible is saying more than it is. And I'm suggesting that Romans chapter 13 is one such passage in, in seeking to settle some of these questions. Romans 13 is also or, or, or often brought into the debate. But I believe uh, when it is done, uh, when, when this occurs, it is quoted as though it were saying more than it is. What we actually find in the New Testament is that it limits itself to certain general statements that provide a framework for the Christian. But it is hardly an exhaustive treatment of the subject of politics. It just gives us as Christians the principles and the guidelines. And then it leaves the believer to work, uh, work those things out. To settle, for instance, the questions uh, about what kinds of civic engagement are best. And when it becomes necessary to engage in civil disobedience, it gives us the principles. It leaves it to us to work it out, which, by the way, it does in other areas as well. Let me also suggest uh, that this is also true of preaching, since preaching is to be modeled and based upon the New Testament. The business of preaching is not to become political ever. It is not the task of the preacher to engage in politics, and I hope that you will agree that that is something which I do not do. It is not my interest, though I, I will tell you, and uh, many of you know me well enough, 
to realize that I am a very politically interested person, although I try as much as I can to suppress that in my role as a minister, and certainly to suppress it entirely in the pulpit. Uh, uh, Dabney has a wonderful book on preaching, which I keep on my desk. Uh, and in the beginning of the book, he warns against the dangers of this. Even though he was highly engaged in the political issues of his day, he warned against the dangers of bringing those political issues into the pulpit. Uh, that is what he taught his students That is what I believe. He warns against the dangers of what he calls political preaching. And this is what he says. Questions of politics must ever divide the minds of men. Hence, it is inevitable that he who embarks publicly in the discussion of these questions must become the object of party animosities and obnoxious to those whom he opposes. Uh, In other words... (laughs) Uh, we have enough that is offensive in the New Testament. We don't need to add any offense and, uh, and disengage or anger the hearers as preachers by engaging in the political questions of the day. But that doesn't mean that anything goes. Even though politics divides the mind of men, uh, as he says, it even, uh, it even, we would agree, divides the minds of Christians. But that doesn't mean anything goes as though every political issue is adiaphora. We are able to offer some moral guidance as the church, and we should. Such as the fact that a Christian could never support a political candidate who supported abortion. I take that for granted, beloved. Obviously, this is so because abortion is an incredible moral evil. In fact, I can't think of anything more wicked. But you see, that is not a political statement. That is not me engaging in politics. That is a moral statement. And I make it without any hesitation whatsoever. It would be a moral evil for a Christian to support such a candidate. But on questions of this or that policy, uh, policy, there is going to be disagreement among Christian people. And, uh, and here is the important point. It is not the business of the church to settle the dispute. We don't come together uh, to, to end the debate. We come together to set the debate aside one day in seven. One day in seven seeking to be heavenly minded on the Sabbath. That's why we come together. And that's what you find in the New Testament. Not a political discourse or commentary. Uh, you don't find a single line along those lines. You find rather an emphasis throughout the New Testament on Christian fellowship and Christian conduct. You find an emphasis on salvation and the gospel and the church. And those things are to be our focus when we gather. So that is the first thing, a heavenly mindedness, which is uh, which is pervasive in the New Testament and which is to mark our gatherings as the church. We do not come together in order to engage in politics and we are following the New Testament as our guide here. But let me dispel another fallacy, and that is to think, and this goes all the way back to the early church, uh, and which I find at times Reformed Christians are guilty of as well, uh, a policy of disengagement, uh, the attitude that now that we are Christians, we have nothing further to do with the world, uh, that uh, because we are to be heavenly minded and heavenly citizens, that we no longer have any citizenship here. This is another fallacy, as I say, which you found in the early church. They were taking things to extremes. They were taking so seriously their heavenly citizenship that they acted as though they were to come out of the world entirely. And that fallacy continued to work itself out in the Roman Catholic Church to the point where you have both in the medieval times and even now the presence of monasteries and the secular sacred distinction. But that is not a biblical distinction, beloved. Uh, yet it is, an, it is an ancient one, which goes all the way back, as I say, to the New Testament. And uh, it is for that reason 
that the New Testament uh, so often seeks to clarify our relationship to the state by telling us uh, that our citizenship, our heavenly citizenship, does not negate or make void our earthly citizenship. The most clear statement is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, which we read earlier. Uh, the Pharisees seeking to trap Jesus, who had been preaching so much about the kingdom of heaven, uh, uh, essentially uh, were, were hoping to get him to say that his disciples need not pay taxes. And then they had him. Then he was trapped. Then they were, in fact, a band of rebels. And, you know, that's always been the reputation of Christians. Uh, not rightly. It's been uh, something that has been slandered against us. Uh, but Jesus dispels their trap or he sets it aside by pointing out quite obviously that uh, just because his focus and his preaching was on the kingdom of heaven doesn't mean uh, that it was right for his disciples not to pay taxes. He simply points out that the, that was a separate question, that the coin had the inscription of Caesar. And of course, it was not wrong to render to Caesar the things that were Caesar's. Just so long as we remember to render to God the things that are God's. And so there's separate questions and separate issues. That's Jesus' answer. There's no trap here. His focus was simply on the heavenly. It doesn't mean that he was negating the earthly. And so he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. That We'll return to that in a moment. But in doing so, he tells his disciples to pay taxes as their Christian duty. There is also what is said in Romans chapter 13, as well as what is said in 1 Peter chapter 2. All of these deal with the tendency uh, of the Christian to go too far. And so the main thing you see is that we as Christians are to operate in both spheres. That we have responsibilities and duties in each, both to the state and to the church, with an obvious priority uh, that priority being that which we owe to God. But again, that priority is not to be taken so far that we imagine that we are taken uh, completely out of one. And so what then can be said about the two spheres? Well, the first, uh, using the language of Jesus and also what the Apostle Paul says, is that we are to render to each what is owed. Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God which is God's. That is also what Paul says in Verse 7, render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And then 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, uh, verse 16, uh, no, verse 17, excuse me. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. It's the same teaching stated a little bit differently. And so that is how the New Testament always deals with the subject. That the Christian has various responsibilities in the various spheres. And he must be conscious to bear all these responsibilities as best he can. He is to be uh, not only a model church member, but a model citizen. And these things most often are not uh, seen as being in conflict. But when they are, there is, of course, an obvious priority. Uh, but again, you notice the word here is uh, that of rendering. Render. And the idea of rendering is that of a debt. It is something which we actually owe. Uh, Jesus is saying, for instance, Paul in agreement that we owe taxes uh, to the state just as we owe obedience to God. And so you can't say, for instance, now that I'm a Christian, that I am free not to pay taxes or that these things don't apply to me now that I'm a Christian. 
you may think that's a ridiculous position, but uh, I will tell you that this actually occurred in our presbytery. There was an elder in one of our churches who said this. Uh, and thank God the problem was resolved when he left the church. But uh, you see, these things are still being said today. Uh, the state has nothing to say to me now that I'm a Christian. That's not right. The Christian is to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, which includes paying taxes. But there's another point here which I think is more important and which is uh, very often overlooked in the way the statement is made. The Christian is to render to each what is owed. And that is that it would be definitely wrong to render to one what you owe to the other. In all these passages, that is equally clear. It would be wrong uh, to render unto Caesar what was owed to God. You see, in making the distinction, let us be clear about that as well. Uh, And so as an example, it would be wrong to fear the king. No, that's what we owe to God, not to the king. Scripture always tells us to fear God, and it, and it never tells us to fear man. In fact, it always tells us that it would be sin to fear man, and that the fear of man is a snare. And so when Paul says, render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, he's speaking of the state, but when he says, fear to whom fear, he is speaking of God. Just as Peter says, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Do not render to one what is owed to the other. That is what Jesus means when he says, render to Caesar's what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. In other words, be careful that you make this distinction, but also that in making it, you do not rob what is owed to one. uh, You do not rob one what is owed to the other. Make sure that in rendering what is owed to the king, you do not rob God. But then next, uh, in considering the two spheres, understand the purpose of each. And then uh, after that, we will consider their relationship to one another. Understand, uh, that is, why God, and we do understand that it was God uh, who set these both up, as Scripture clearly teaches. Understand why it is that he has set up the church and the state. What is their purpose? What is their function? Now, this is an important way of putting it, because one of the things we're seeking to understand is the way each of these has authority over us as individuals. In other words, the question here has to do with authority, since we are told to be subject. We are told to be subject to the governing authorities, and we as Christians are happy to do so. But you notice we're also and equally told to be subject to the rulers in the church. Submission is our duty in both spheres. And so how do we define and distinguish the limits of authority which each possesses? We do so by understanding the purpose and the function of each. Why has God set them up? Well, the church, and I'll be brief with each of these points, the, the church is just a society of believers. That's all it is. It's an ecclesia or a gathering or an assembly. It consists of members of every nation and tribe. In other words, it has nothing whatsoever to do with the state. A church is able to function independent of the state. And whatever state it happens to be in has no bearing whatsoever on her status as a church, at least not in principle. And so the church is not a political organization, still less is it a national one. The church is a spiritual society, which, as I say, is able to function in any nation and under any form of government. Her interests, therefore, and her authority are purely spiritual. The weapons of her warfare are not carnal, but spiritual, as the Apostle Paul says. 
But the state is something different. God has set up the state for another purpose and another reason. The state's interests have to do with the common good of its citizens, which is an important distinction between the state and the church. The state is interested in all of her citizens, the welfare of all of her citizens, whether they be Christian or not. That is clearly what Paul means when he says in verses 3 and 4, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. He's speaking in general about all of its citizens. That is why the state is put in place. To reward the good, to restrain the evil. Similarly, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evils and the praise of those who do right. And so the purpose of the state, which I think I just said, is both negative and positive, both to restrain evil, to punish the evildoer and to reward those who do good. In other words, to create an orderly uh, and well-functioning society for the common good of its citizens. But in this, it only deals with, uh, with that which all men share in common. And all men do not share Christ in common. That is why the church is a separate entity and an exclusive one. It limits its membership only to those who are disciples of Jesus Christ. But the state deals with those things which all men share in common, uh, as, for instance, property, national defense, public safety, and so on. And so there are obviously two quite distinct entities, which leads me to another point, And that is defining the relationship of each to the other, the church and the state. And there are three main views. Uh, let me just very briefly summarize them for you. First of all, uh, and I think it should already be clear that I do not believe this, and I hope that you do not believe this, uh, although many have believed this, and uh, it, it is uh, the view that they are in fact one, uh, very similar to what you had in the Old Covenant of the Old Testament, which was a theocracy where the state and the church were one entity. Uh, but I'm saying that now, in the, since the New Covenant has dawned, they have been broken apart. Nevertheless, there have been many historically who have seen them as one in one way or another. And there are two practical ways that this view works itself out historically. First, there is the Roman Catholic view, which sees the church as above the state. And even then, you notice there is a distinction which they make, although uh, in taking the two spheres, they make them overlap in a certain way. Well, the Roman Catholics do so uh, in principle and uh, in the medieval times in practice by placing the pope as the head not only of the church, but also of the state. Uh, and uh, in doing so, uh, they, they identified, uh, or they at least overlapped the two spheres, the church above the state. The Reformation, therefore, was as much a revolution in the national sphere as it was in the political, or, or in the, the ecclesiastical sphere. And if you study the history of the Reformation, you will notice that. But then there is what is called, and this is what you will find in the Reformed tradition, a view which I would say is equally wrong, the Erastian view, which is the opposite. The Erastian view believes uh, that the, the state is the head of the church, as, for instance, you find in the Church of England. Uh, 
I don't have time to go into this. I can only express my disappointment that so many of our forefathers in the Reformed tradition held to this view. And I'm just noticing uh, the fact that it exists. You have to recognize, however, as you're looking at, at, at instances of, uh, for instance, how the church has dealt with plagues in times past, uh, what view the man held. And sometimes you recognize that the man held an Erastian view. And that will influence your understanding of what he says about how the church listens to the state at such times. That's why it's relevant. Let me state to you the biblical view, or at least my view. And I hope it's your view as well. And it is the view that we share in common in this great country. And that is the belief that they are separate. The church and the state as two spheres are separate spheres by God's design. And that they really have almost nothing to do with each other. Let me quote A.A. A. Hodge in his commentary on the confession. The confession has many great statements on the subject. Uh, if I had time, I would go into them. But I, I find uh, what A.A. A. Hodge says uh, in summary very helpful here. The church and the state are both divine institutions having different objects and spheres of action, uh, different governments and officers, and hence are independent of each other. It's another helpful word here. Not only are the spheres separate, but they're independent. It isn't one over the other, nor are they seen as overlapping, but they are to exist as separate, independent entities. Again, that is the view which is common to our nation. It was that view that led the Pilgrim Fathers to flee the Erastian view in England and to form our nation. It is the view which is enshrined in our Constitution in the First Amendment. It is the view which we cherish as Americans. And let me say this. It is the view I fear is in jeopardy today. Religious liberty is something I fear we will lose if only because we didn't care. We didn't care to even know it, let alone defend it. But I would say this to you all. It is incumbent upon us as Protestants, especially in this land, to defend the great principle of religious liberty. For if we will not do it, then who will? It was always Christians who pled for religious liberty. The idea that we are free to worship God according to our own consciences without interference from the state. Which is surely in keeping with the scriptural idea of the church and of the state. The New Testament never envisions them as being one. Always separate. Always separate. And I don't know whether I said this or not. One of the difficulties of preaching twice is I can't remember when I said something. And I, if I repeat myself in a sermon, it's because I can't remember whether I said in the first service or in this sermon. So you'll forgive me. But the Erastian view uh, always, always, always borrows from the Old Testament. That's one of its, its cardinal fallacies and problems. If you build an ecclesiology out of the New Testament... You will view the state and the church as separate entities. And you will view the church as free uh, from interference from the state in uh, her uh, not only religious liberty, but also in her worship and religious life. Now, the third view, you ask, what could possibly be left? The third view is uh, one of the tragedies of history, and it's one of the tragedies of of humanity, and that is the fact that the best men are not always consistent, let us be honest. And so even though you will find Luther and Calvin and even the Pilgrim Fathers who founded this nation articulating religious liberty, you will also find them, if you study the history, using the state to implement their religious reforms. Uh, 
And so, as I say, as this is somewhat of a religious or a historical study, rather, we have to be honest about that. A third view is something of a blend, if only because we as human beings, especially once we get a little bit of power, have so much trouble in being consistent to our principles and not borrowing a little bit of the power of the state to implement our religious ideas. But the best view, as I say, is the second. It is the most scriptural, and it is even that which our heroes articulated, even if they did not implement it perfectly. The final point is this, and I think this is really the most important question, or at least it's the most pressing one. And that is the relationship of the believer to the state. What happens when you leave the doors of this church? Well, I would say uh, a great deal changes, as long as you recognize there is this distinction, which is according uh, to God's design. And so let us suppose that we as Christians are clear about the distinction between the church and the state. Still, each of us must live in society and play our part because the New Testament tells us to do this as well as necessity. And if one day is spent in the church, taken up with heavenly spiritual things, six days are still left to labor in the world. And so how are we as Christians and as individuals to view this relationship? Again, I'm only interested in the guiding principles, not the details. I don't know if I'll answer every question, but perhaps I will offer a little bit of help. And there are two main things I want to say about this. The first thing we see is that Paul is describing an attitude of submission. In other words, he doesn't just say, notice carefully, I want you to obey everything they tell you to do. He doesn't say that. He rather describes what our disposition is to be, namely one of subjection and submission. And you find that in every statement. And so he says, be subject, which is slightly different. But what does this look like, this attitude or this disposition of submission? Well, it's important to stress that the same idea and the same word is found in the other spheres. Wives are to be subject to their husbands. So the idea of submission is in the home. Children are to be in subjection to their parents. Sheep are to be in subjection to the elders. Again and again, the New Testament says, I want you to submit to the elders. Uh, we even find in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20, that Christians are to be subject one to another. Now, isn't that interesting? Uh, again, I'm saying that he is describing a disposition and an attitude. And that attitude looks like this. What the Christian is to be like in all these various spheres. The Christian is to be one who doesn't assert himself. He is humble and he is meek in every sphere. He's humble and he's meek in the home, the state, and so on. He also, in his humility, recognizes that it is the Lord who has set up these various spheres so he, uh, and realms of authority. And so he doesn't seek to overthrow them. In this, he resembles his Lord, which uh, Peter tells us in, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, that our humility and our meekness is the way we keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles because we are emulating our Lord who also had to pass through this world and who also had to deal with earthly authorities and was executed at their hands. But how did he do so? He says this, verse 21, You have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. For you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his, in his body on the cross, so that we might die 
to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you are healed. Jesus Christ left us a model of meekness and humility, which makes it very easy to submit. The Christian is therefore, as Peter is arguing in 1 Peter chapter 2, not to be a rebel, but a model citizen. And in this is found his Christian witness. Verse 15, for, this, for such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Especially since the world is so ready to slander the Christian at every turn. And so the Christian doesn't seek to be an agitator. Still less does he resent the presence of authority in the various realms, whether in the home or the state uh, or so on. Uh, something which I've said before, but I'll say it again. I don't like it when I hear you say that the state is a necessary evil. I sometimes hear Christians say that that isn't right, beloved. That is a negation of what Paul and Jesus are telling us. In fact, the idea here is that we are happy about the presence of the state. We recognize the necessity of the state. And we recognize who it is who has set up the state. It is the Lord who has done so. The Lord recognizing that man is so wicked and so sinful. And yes, even Christians, that if we were simply left to live our lives as we pleased, that it would be a state of pure anarchy and lawlessness and moral evil would abound. If you look carefully at what Paul and Peter and Jesus are saying, it is clear that the state has been set up for our good. And so, as I say, we are happy about it and we are therefore to be in subjection, not merely out of fear of punishment, since that's how the Gentiles live. But as Paul says, for conscience sake, verse five, therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, not just because you're afraid you'll be punished if you disobey, but also for conscience sake. In other words, my conscience as a Christian tells me this is right and this is good. And this is the will of God. That's the first guiding principle, an attitude of submission. But there is also something else we must realize, the second point, and this is the point I'm most eager to make. And that is there are definite limits to our submission, just as in the other spheres. I can't imagine a scenario in which the elders in a church were able to tell the members uh, to do whatever they say. I don't think any of you would stand for that, would you? Well, it's no different in the state. There are always limits to our submission. There are always limits to authority. And the crucial consideration, and I thank uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones for pointing this out to me. I read all of his sermons on this passage again in my preparation for this sermon, but it's so obvious. And we just saw it. The crucial consideration is the conscience itself. And when you read Romans 12, 13, and 14 together, suddenly you realize that Paul is making a cohesive argument and that Romans 13 doesn't just stand on its own. But that the Christian is someone who doesn't simply submit to the state or, or, or the wife to her husband, but that in everything we are ultimately submitting to the Lord since it is the Lord uh, to whom we must answer ultimately. The conscience is the crucial consideration. Not only here in what he says in verse 5, we are to be subject not merely because of wrath, but for conscience sake, but that then becomes the dominant idea in Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14 is the great chapter on Christian liberty. It is the great chapter on the Christian conscience. And it doesn't just coincidentally happen to come after discussion on the state. Listen to what Paul says in verse 12, uh, which I think is a summary of everything that he says. He says, each one 
of us will give an account of himself to God. And he is speaking there of genuine matters of conscience. The fact that each of us, for the lives that we've lived and the convictions that we lived by, ultimately have to answer not to our fellow Christian, not to the governing authorities, not to the elders, but to the Lord at the end of our life. When we have to face him. And the point is nobody can do that for you. Only you can speak for yourself. Only you can answer for the life that you lived. And only you can say to God. As Paul said. I don't remember where he said it. But I've kept a clean conscience. Both before man and before God. That should always be your goal beloved. As you seek to live out the Christian life. Matters of conscience. Genuine matters of conscience. That's the focus there. Not just simply uh, this opinion or that. I think sometimes that's what we mean when we speak of matters of conscience. But we're talking about things that define your relationship with the Lord. Things that define your walk with Him. Things that define you as a Christian. Nobody can decide those for you. Only your conscience can. This is what the Apostle Paul says. He tells you, not even another Christian has any say in the matter. Who are you to judge the servant of another? Verse 14 To his own master he stands or falls. And he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord. For he uh, gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord he does not eat. And gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself. And not one of us dies for himself. But each of us, well, he says, we live for the Lord. We die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Verse 12. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. And he even goes on to say, verse 23, whoever, he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he's not eating from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. In other words, don't go against your conscience. That is neither safe nor sound. That's what Luther said. The diet of worms. To go against conscience is neither safe nor sound. I must do what I believe is right. To go against my conscience, to act not on the principle of faith in any realm, is always sin. And so the point is, let me say again, the point which is being made in Romans chapter 14 is that no one and nothing must come between me and God. Not even my fellow Christian. And certainly not the state. Submission doesn't mean I just do whatever the the other person says. It rather describes an attitude of reverence. A willingness to be told up to a point. But I know that no matter what, I cannot go against my own conscience. Uh, Again, for to do so is neither safe nor sound. Of course, if we disobey because of conscience... We must, be, we must be prepared to accept the consequences. And even then, my conscience, I will find, is in agreement. If I must suffer for this, then even that is right. But we also know that this can be taken to absurd extremes. Anarchy results when every man does what is right in his own eyes. And the whole purpose of the teaching here is not to say, go against your conscience. It's only to say, let us be careful. Let us be careful that we don't just all uh, act according to our own opinions and our own whims. That is equally dangerous. The clear light and the clear teaching of scripture is this. Be in subjection. But don't deny. uh, Don't deny your conscience. Don't act outside of the principle or the realm of faith. So we are to see the state as something positive. 
Something which ministers our welfare on behalf of God. Something which God appointed for my good. Again, that too and equally is a matter of conscience. But there are definite limits here. And we must realize that as well. There is no entity, I say again, which is able to make me violate my own conscience. Or which I must allow to interfere with my walk with the Lord. Just as soon as that happens, then I must be prepared to disobey. But notice... I can do so with a spirit of submission and reverence. I acknowledge their authority even as I disobey them. But I fear God and not man. And so it all has to be held in balance, beloved. Don't just throw out Romans 13 without understanding first all the verses, verses 1 through 7, but also the teaching which surrounds it. There is nothing, Romans 14 tells me, which must be allowed to make me do what I feel is wrong. Since it is I and no one else who must give an account to the Lord for myself. Let me uh, borrow from Martin Lloyd-Jones now uh, in the way he makes the same point. The real connotation of this expression, he says, be subject unto, means that in Romans 13, Paul tells us that we are to regard these higher powers as having greater claims on us than we have on ourselves. As Christian people, we are to honor them, respect them, put ourselves under them, as it were, and submit ourselves unto them. The apostle is not thinking of a blind obedience, nor is he talking about some uncritical obedience whereby we automatically do everything we are told. Paul is describing, notice the word again, I used it as well. He's describing an attitude of mind where we recognize certain things as being in position and act and behave in accordance with that recognition. And then speaking of the liberty... Of conscience, he says, the state must never tyrannize over my conscience. And when my conscience tells me that I'm being asked to do something that contravenes my relationship to God, I listen to my conscience. And so let me wrap it up by saying this. When the state seeks to interfere with my ability to worship God, I do not listen. I tell you plainly, I am prepared to disobey the state on that. Religious liberty is the great principle we must maintain even in such serious times as these. It is the principle which uh, we must be prepared even to suffer for, as our forefathers did before us. But that doesn't mean that we're just a band of rebels, as uh, the unbeliever slanderously claims about us. No, we are prepared in general to submit to the state, to be model citizens, in fact, to be the best citizens, better even than they, but up to a point. And let us be clear together, beloved, about what that point is. Once the state gets in between me and God, especially with regard to worship, then I'm no longer interested in what the state has to say. We must obey God rather than men. Amen. And I would ask the elders now to join me at the table. Well, I think I think the main thing I want to emphasize here, uh, Hebrews provides much better, better preparation for the Lord's Supper than that sermon. But I also want to emphasize that uh, the reason we come together as a body of Christians is because the Lord tells us to do so. 
And even if certain bureaucrats, as has been done in this year, tell us not to do this, for instance, don't take the Lord's Supper, it's not safe. They don't get to decide that for us. We have a higher interest and a higher priority. And part of our commitment as Christians at recognizing the distinctness of the, of the church to the state occurs in our corporate life of worship. And, and, and it is at that moment uh, that the rubber really meets the road and we are prepared to defy the state. That, that, that isn't true at the moment but uh, where we are acting in defiance. But it, it, it was at an earlier time uh, where certain guidelines were set out. Uh, and uh, I, I'm just stressing to you that the Lord's Supper really does embody the whole principle of the sermon. The way the church is a separate entity, the way by these things we find something that we can't find in the world. And that the Lord is offering something to us in the church that we can't find anywhere else. And so we have to gather, because if we don't gather, we can never do this. And we can never experience the blessings of the Lord's Supper, which transcend anything else that we are able to find in the world. If that's your commitment, then I say you belong to Christ and the table is for you. He is marking you out as one who belongs to him, one who, for whom he shed his blood. And he's saying, as John MacArthur said, that the only real safety can be found in the church. It's far too dangerous to be outside the church. We have to do this. That's a matter of conscience. And nobody can tell me otherwise. I won't let him. Uh, So, as I say, the rubber really does meet the road on these issues, all of these issues. Worship is the great thing. It has to be the great thing. And if it isn't, then we've really lost sight of what's important. Uh, And our consciences have begun to go sideways. Uh, but with, with those words, uh, let us just read what our Lord has to say, and then I will distribute the elements. Mark chapter 14. Spiritual blessings for spiritual people. While they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank from it, and he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will never drink it. I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the blessings here which we find at the table of the Lord's Supper. And we ask you, uh, as we have renewed our commitment in a new way this year to taking the Lord's Supper every week, that we might find rich spiritual blessings there and that you would affirm our desire uh, to worship you in this way. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Beginning then with the bread. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples as I ministering in his name. Give this bread to you.
Our Lord Jesus said, take eat, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, our Savior also took the cup, and having given thanks, as has been done in his name, he gave it to his disciples, as I ministering in his name, give this cup to you. And as a reminder, the outer ring is wine, the inner ring rings are grape juice.
Our Lord Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink of it, all of you. And now let us close out our worship by singing together hymn 444. And please stand. the Lord's blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.